You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Lord willing, I want to look at verses 19 through 23 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, please pull out the notes provided for you in your bulletin. It's about six pages long, and the reason I'm telling you that is because there's so much scripture references, cross-references that I want to show you this morning. Uh, and if you're watching online, I would encourage you to go to uh, mtcarmeldemers.com. That's our website. You can go to the uh, watch. Uh, and then if you hover over watch and go to the notes tab, take notes. Uh, there on the Sunday morning notes, you can download this, this document uh, that I've given to everyone that's seated here. Uh, also, this is available on our, um, on the version Bible app, the Y-O-U version Bible app. You can download that. After you download it, go to the More tab, uh, tap Events, find Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and then click on today's sermon title, and you can save and see and save all the scripture references that I'm going to be giving you uh, this morning. John chapter 1 verses 19 through 23, we're continuing a series just simply entitled Advent. We talked about the Advent last week or the arrival of the Son of Man. Not only his first Advent, his arrival being Christmas, Jesus is the Son of Man, but also looking forward to his second Advent, his second arrival when he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. And today I want to shift our focus back to the first advent and talk about preparation. Preparation begins. How do we prepare for the first advent of Jesus since he has come? I want to give you a countdown of my top ten struggles of preparing for our baby, Rotland and Raz. Number 10, deciding how to share the good news. That was the easiest part in the whole process. One of my favorite things that we did uh, when we were going to reveal the gender of our first child, Scotty, 
uh, was we had, I don't, some of you may have seen these, where you had a little scratch-offs, and they show pink or blue. And my favorite, one of my favorite memories, my sister was so excited that we were having a child that when we went to do the gender reveal, Anna, my sister, she put her scratch-off on the uh, table, started scratching through, and she's like, it's brown. They're like, you scratched through the scratch-off onto the table, all right? Uh, it was one of my favorite things, preparing for our kids. Number nine, uh, and if you remember, if you were ever having to deal with this, preparing for how maternity or paternity leave was going to shake down, that was always a delightful conversation in our house. Number eight, the worst, right, reviewing insurance cost and waiting to find out how much it was going to be. Number seven, I'm simply going to label feeding. Number six, diaper changes. And for the record, when, if she watches this when she's older, Scotland is way worse than Haddon. Five, assembling the crib because, as I told you, I am mechanically inept. Four, preparing for visitors. Now, if you know, if you know me well, you actually know I am an introvert and my home is my sacred space. Well, everybody wants to see the baby, right? It was a tough time in the Taylor house, all right? When, you, when you're a pastor, like, your child is a piece of property for the church. I mean, that's just how it is. Um, so anyways, that was hard. Number three, to this day, installing a car seat. They are of the devil. I know they protect the little ones, but trying to put them in the car. Terrible. Terrible. Number two, delivery day for dad. Now, I know. We have no room to talk. However, the best advice that was ever given to me was just always follow the baby. Because to look back is to look back like at Sodom and Gomorrah. Like that's the way I needed to think about it. I didn't want to see my wife anymore. I <laughs> just want to hold those babies. You remember that. And then the last thing, and this is Haddon, sleepless nights. Ooh. I'm like, we're just now, I need the church to know this. I might have preached heresy for like the first nine months after Haddon was born. We were doing the best we could, all right? Those are all some of the things that are involved in preparing for the coming of a kid into your life. Because it changes your life. Changes your life. When Mandy and I didn't have kids, and I love my kids, you know that, but I'm saying this, I'll never forget like going out at Taco Bell at 2 o'clock in the morning or going to see a, a movie. Right? But when that child arrives, your, your lives are oriented around that child. Now, what I want you to conceive of is what happens when the God-man comes down as a child? You think <laughs> that you have some reorient, reorienting of your life to do for your own baby. What happens when the God-man comes? And in fact, God, in his providence, sent someone in advance to tell you how to prepare. Tell you how to get ready for the arrival of the God-man. This is important. Last week, we discussed the second advent or the arrival of the Son of Man. That we had to be sober-minded, not disillusioned by the anxieties and burdens of this world. Because Jesus, he can come at any minute to judge us living or dead, all right? This week, 
we are studying our proper response to Jesus' first coming, his first advent. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about Israel's Messiah. The word Messiah, when it's in the Greek, is Christos. That's why you hear Christ. Jesus, and, and actually it's a transliteration of Joshua. Joshua the Messiah, or the chosen one. Which can easily be a whole other sermon. We could go through all the prophecies about just the birth of the Christ or the Messiah. But in today's text, we're going to focus on the prophetic response to Jesus' first advent. The Old Testament passage that is referenced in today's Bible text was written 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. It was written to Jews held captive in Babylon. They were exiles or slaves to a foreign superpower. The passage, you just note this, is found in Isaiah 40, and it's a message of hope written to those exiles in Babylon. That God would send a king, God's king, would come and deliver his people from Babylonian captivity. Now, it's interesting to note that after Jesus came, died for our sins and was raised from the dead, Jesus' disciples understood this Isaiah 40 passage in two lights. They saw it as a double fulfillment or a dual prophecy where there's an initial partial fulfillment and then a more complete fulfillment later down the road. The first or partial fulfillment of Isaiah 40 was that God sent King Cyrus of Persia to come and overthrow the Babylonians and send the Jews in their captivity back to Jerusalem, their hometown. All right, So that's kind of the initial partial fulfillment. But you will see in the New Testament, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, have no problem ascribing Isaiah 40 that God's real king is Jesus. That ultimately the, the real hope of Israel wasn't King Cyrus, but the advent of Jesus. And so in Isaiah 40, we see how the people were to prepare for King Cyrus. There is a parallel for how the people of our day, how you and I are to prepare for the arrival or the advent of King Jesus. You ready? This is good. Let's see what it says in John chapter 1. Verses 19 through 23. No, notice the word this is kind of hard. This, he's talking about what's about to be said. This, what's about to be said, was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem, that's the capital, sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? Now, I'll explain the significance of that in a moment, but let's keep reading the text. Number 20, verse 20. He didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I am not the chosen one. I am not the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. All right? Notice this next verse. What then, they asked, are you Elijah? Another crazy question. Notice what John says. I am not, he said. Are you the prophet. I don't know if you notice in your text it's a capitalized P. <laughs> okay, the prophet. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. In verse 22, who are you then? They asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. You see this? This is a delegation sent by the capital. 
What can you tell us about yourself? Now, verse 23, and this is John referencing Isaiah 40. He says this, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight, straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. So now remember, Isaiah 40, make straight the way of the Lord, was ultimately at that time a reference to get ready, King Cyrus is coming to deliver the Jews from Babylon. And notice what he, and this event has happened 500 years ago. Cyrus did this. And John all of a sudden says, I am the voice to tell the people to get ready for the coming of Yahweh's king. Wow. Like, isn't that already done? Nope. Partially, but not in full. And I'm here to do it. What are we to see here? How do we prepare for Jesus' first advent? Let me put this into context. John the Baptist was highly esteemed by the Jews. He lived in the desert. He was extraordinarily austere. He had powerful sermons that gripped the masses. In fact, if you read in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, it says, The whole Judean countryside and all the peoples of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is full-blown revival that's happening on the banks of the Jordan River. All right? This led many to suppose that this John must be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. John the Baptist is the Christ. John the Baptist is the Messiah. This is God's king. He's come to deliver us. So the Sanhedrin, this would be the equivalent of like the United States Supreme Court. All right? So the Jewish Supreme Court says we got to send a delegation out there to the riverbanks and find out who does John say he is. Is he really the Messiah? So they sent a solemn delegation of priests, so this is religious leaders, and Levites. Those are the people who work with the priests. These are the scholars. These are the religious gurus. They should know whether or not that John is the Christ. And they go to request a statement from John. I mean, this, this is like PR. Like, So what do you have to say for yourself? What are you doing here? What's the object of your mission? And what we'll eventually see is that this group of people want to undermine John because they don't like the influence that he yield, uh, wields over the people. They're going to ultimately undermine him. But right now they're just interrogating him. And in the middle of this interrogation, this back and forth, he gives us the gospel, believe it or not, by answering no. <laughs> no, no, no. So what does John say about himself? Who are you, they ask. And notice, isn't this interesting? They didn't say, are you the Christ? Did you see the text? They didn't say, are you the Christ? But he knew exactly what they wanted. I'm not the Christ. Isn't that amazing? I know that's why you've come out here. You want to know if Scripture is being fulfilled. I am not the Christ. John confessed, it would be a great error to suppose me to be him. Then the delegation asked, well, are you Elijah? Now, for us, we go, why would they even think that a man who lived some 900 years ago, that their scripture said was taken up into a fiery chariot, had come back down, right? Why would you think this is Elijah from 900 years ago? 
And it's due to a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Just listen to this. It says, look, this is God speaking, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord Yahweh comes. Before Yahweh comes down in judgment, I will send Elijah to you to get you ready. And so they thought with this revival breaking out, maybe this is actually Elijah. Maybe God has sent Elijah and judgment is coming on us. So it's not as outlandish to think about that in light of the scriptures. And John might have given the affirmative and actually told them yes, because we see later on the lips of Jesus that Jesus said that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. That their prophetic function was the same. They were there to prepare people for the coming of God. And then they finally ask him, are you the prophet with a capital P? Now this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. This is Moses speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Notice what he says. God, I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. Did you notice what the prophet with the capital B says? Whatever comes out of his mouth is God's word. Everything that comes out of this man's mouth is the word of God. I will hold you accountable for everything. So they're saying this, John, are you the prophet? Does everybody need to be listening to you? Right? That's what they're asking. And what does he say? No, not the prophet. <laughs> I'm not that prophet. And what you'll find is that, you'll see this, is Jesus claims to be that prophet. Jesus claims, I'm the prophet that Moses talked about. And so notice, I mean, could you imagine, ladies and gentlemen, I mean, just, would, would you let yourself be prideful, spiritually prideful or religiously prideful for just a second? If a group of of religious scholars came up to you and said, are you the chosen one from the Old Testament? No. What about like Elijah, like the powerhouse preacher that's going to prepare us for judgment? No. What about the prophet? I mean, absolutely accurate. Everything you say that comes out of your mouth is God's word. No. Would you not think that would just go to your head a little bit? Right? I mean, they're asking, I mean, this is the who's who list of people in the Old Testament that you could possibly be. And he goes, I'm none of those things. Jesus, listen to what Jesus said of John in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Did you catch what he said? According to Jesus, the greatest preacher and prophet in the whole Bible, apart from him, is John the Baptist. And, and, and I just think you would see John and John go, no, <laughs> no way. John the Baptist humbled himself profoundly. And I think here's how this happens. How does a man like John humble himself because when you look at Jesus you realize you're nothing did you hear me church 
All he could do, check this, all I can do is prepare you for the one. I'm not the one. And anything short of the one is nothing. Did you catch that? His whole life, what was it? I'm here to make much of Jesus. That's all I care to do. And we should ask ourselves, write this down, at Advent season, we need to really look at ourselves and go, who are you? Who are you? What are we? Think about this. You are a human having a soul and a body. You're mud and dirt made in the image of God. And for which do you care more? Most of the time we care more for our bodies. And how foolish is that? Because these bodies one day sink into a grave and rot away. You and I are sinners. If we die in our sins, what becomes of us? We're cast into hell. We're not the Savior. We're not the Christ. We're not the Messiah. We need a Savior. We need the Christ. We need the Messiah. A God-man who would die for our sins, not rot in some grave, but would be raised from the dead for our forgiveness. And John goes, I can't do any of that for you. And church, what I want you to understand, we can identify with John. Not that. Not me. Nope. We're looking for someone else that can do this for us. If we contemplate God in His infinite perfections, His holiness, and then consider our utter poverty and sinfulness, we should find no difficulty at all saying, I am not the Savior, and in fact, I need one. I need one, and John the Baptist did too. Isn't that amazing? In addition, think about this. We tend to rejoice. I I feel the temptation, and I'm sure you do too, when our good works, when we do good things, when they're made known to the public, right? When someone kind of brags on you. We often sound our own praises when our opportunity presents itself, but let's just be honest, that shouldn't be the case with real Christians. Christians like to conceal their good qualities and virtues. And whatever may be praiseworthy, who do we attribute it to? Jesus. Christian receives and bear humiliations, slights, neglect, contempt, and we do it with patience and joy. Or do when we feel those slights, do we bear that spite in our heart and we feel like insulting that other person who's offended our self-conceit? That's not what a Christian does. (laughs) We conceal the good we do and we shrug off the hateful things with patience and joy. So what does John say about himself in the affirmative, the positive? I'm, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. So what do you have to say? And he quotes Isaiah 40 verse 3. This is what he says. I do fulfill scripture, but this is what I do. He says, I am the voice of one crying out, prepare the way of Yahweh in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. John declares he was the forerunner. I need you to catch this. He says, I'm here to make people ready for who? And I'm not, and yes, but I want you to go a little closer. For who? Yahweh. The God of Israel is coming, and I'm here to get you ready. He goes, that guy? Yes. (laughs) Could you 
Y'all, could you catch it? A, a man. A man is coming, and you're calling him God. Yes. And get ready for next week's sermon. Oh, man, I want to so bad. And I was like, no, we're going to have to do this later. John declares he was the forerunner of God himself. And what was John's commission to do? What was, he, what was his message? How did he get people ready? It's one word and write it down. He preached repentance. John's not, I got one message and I'm going to drill it into the ground. Repent. Repent, repent, repent. Now, what we're going to see is repentance isn't everything. But mark my words. Repentance is required to share in the grace of redemption. There is no such thing as salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. You take any $5 theological word and you want to receive it without repentance, you will not get it. All right? Listen to what Jesus himself said about the proper response to his advent. Look at Luke 13, 4 through 5. People had come to Jesus. There had been this terrific accident. And people assumed because this accident happened, they, had must, they must have been under God's judgment. And so they asked Jesus, like, Jesus, you want to give us your thoughts upon this terrible accident? And listen to what Jesus says. You ready? They would not, I don't know if Jesus would be good for the media today. Listen to what he said. He says, or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed? He's like, you're talking about them? He says, notice this. You think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? Now I'll tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish. You should, towers should be dropping down all the time on people. You must repent. And may I remind you, and I, this is more, I know you're sitting in here, but if you're a visitor or if you're viewing and you're, you're scrolling through Facebook or skipping around on YouTube, i got to tell you this. The true Christian church still preaches repentance. If it doesn't, they're not bringing you to the Savior. I need you to catch that. That's how important the message is. Think about this. I'll never forget you look at the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The shortest one is Mark. And where does the gospel begin? Mark has no birth account. You know what he starts with? John the Baptist. The message of repentance. Hey, before you celebrate Christmas, you better hear about repentance. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Before you hear about the virgin birth, I got to tell you about this one guy who prepared the people. And what did he do? He preached repentance. And the end of Luke rings with the tone of repentance. Luke 24, 46 through 47. This is Jesus commissioning the disciples. This is the great commission of the book of Luke. He says, he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. If you wondered, church, your job is to preach repentance. People cannot be forgiven without it. And here's the part. This is the part that's so sad. You're like, well, man, you know, I, I, I'll just go ahead and be honest. I ain't got a lot of requests on messages or series about repentance. I don't have people coming to me like, Josh, man, we would just love if you would tell us more about our sin 
on how to run from it. Nobody wants that. You know, we want five healthy tips to how to make it through a consumer materialistic Christmas. Like, I get that, I get that. Or, or church has to be flashy. And I understand it. Like, I, I'm sympathetic. I understand, like, there's something cool about drawing a crowd together and proclaiming the gospel. But what, I, what, what, ref, what, what John the Baptist does for me, it centers my soul into the most essential elements. Because here's the part that we find fascinating about John the Baptist. You ready for John the Baptist? Listen to what, what they said about John the Baptist in the book of John. All right? Now, this is the, the, the disciple or the friend of Jesus. He says this. For this is what John 10, 40 through 41 says. So he, meaning Jesus, departed again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier, and he remained there. So notice what happens. Jesus goes back into John the Baptist's territory where he had been preaching, where he got famous, right? Where people had repented of sin. And when Jesus arrives there, notice what the people said. This is awesome. Many came to him and said, John never did a sign. Now catch this, this makes me so happy. He never did a miracle. The brother was not flashy. I mean, y'all, he, he ate locusts and honey. Like, this is, he's backwoods. All right? Never did a sign, a sign, a, something miraculous that would point to himself. Never had anything to show. But notice what he did, and this is good. He says this, he says, but everything John said about this man, Jesus, was true. Whoa! That, hey, you can make, hey, hey Josh wasn't flashy. Could, could have been 10,000 better preachers, right? But the one thing I'll give him is whatever he said about Jesus was true. There can be no greater reputation for a Christian. You may not work in signs and wonders. You can't sing. You can't do much. Can you tell people about Jesus accurately? Yeah. That's all people need to know. What a wonderful thing. Could you imagine? Man, we've been in John the Baptist's ministry. He keeps telling us about you. <laughs> Amazing. Here's the big idea, real simple. Preparation for Advent begins with repentance. It doesn't end with repentance. We'll do that next week. But it begins with repentance. Now, real quick. Repentance is a antique word we don't use in our conversation very often. But let me say this. This is one of those words that we actually need to fight for because the concept is so rich. I don't know if we can really express it without just having the word repentance and, and defining it for people. This is a very Christian word. And the church needs to keep it on her lips. Okay? What is repentance? Probably your, your go-to definition in the Bible is Isaiah 55, 7. And it just, it's a picture of what repentance is. Isaiah 55, 7, it says, Let the wicked one, and that would be every one of us, let the wicked one abandon his way, the way he lives his life, and the sinful one, notice this, his thoughts. Notice it's not just behavioral, it's attitudes, it's perspectives, it's value, it's your thought life as well. Let him return to the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, so he may have compassion on him, God will forgive him, and to our God, for he will freely forgive. Did you notice? There is that requirement. You've got to acknowledge, I am a sinner, living a sinner's life with sinner's thoughts, and I need God. That's like part one. 
To repent is, is literally comes from the verb to return. It's to turn away from sin. And this is why I say it's the beginning, because it's not complete until you conceive of it as returning to God. And, and, and Jesus, John's going to get very clear about it. It's repentance and then faith in who? Jesus. Because he is God. Right? So repentance without Jesus, no hope. No hope. You just recognize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That's what repentance does. It prepares you. But if you get the full concept of repentance, repentance goes like, I am a sinner. Where's the Savior? That's Jesus. You see? And you take hold of him. But it does include a change of attitude and action from sin toward obedience to Jesus. I love what A.W. Pink says. He says, repentance, this is a good word picture. Think about this. Repentance is the hand releasing the filthy objects it has previously clung to, and faith is then extending that empty hand to receive the gift of grace. Did you notice, though, you're still not bringing anything to God. You're like, I'm letting go of this, and whatever you give me, I'll take it. That's repentance. Mark 1.15, Jesus, he Guess, guess what Jesus' first message is dealt with? Repentance. And Jesus gives us a, maybe a more fuller picture in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What? I'm the Savior. Believe me. Repentance and faith are two sides of the exact same coin. Can I show you how Paul, the apostle, how he conceived of repentance. And for those who've experienced it, you'll know exactly what he means by this. This is Jesus commissioning Paul to go and preach the gospel. You ready? Acts 26, 17 through 18. I will rescue you uh, from your people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. This is Paul was under great persecution. I'm going to free you, and I'm gonna, but you're going to go back to them. And notice what he's to do. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isn't it true, and I've talked about this, I was having a great conversation with Jerry Reddish the other day, we were talking about, man, it is literally like you're in a dark room and all of a sudden somebody turns on the light. And it is. And all of a sudden you see it and it makes sense. And notice, from being in the grip of Satan to being in the grip of God's love. That's what repentance does. Now, how do we show repentance? Right? Because if repentance changes, like starts in our hearts and in our thoughts, what we believe and feel ultimately manifests or demonstrates itself in the way we live. And, Paul, and, and, the, and John the Baptist was clear about this. It would make an evident change in your life. If you really repented. Listen to what he says in Luke 3, 7. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him. Because they, these were the parts of the crowds that were from the delegation, right? You're not here to really be baptized. You want to find out and pick a fight. Okay? So he says, brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. <laughs> who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Right? He just, no nonsense. And then he says this. They, the crowds asked, what then should we do, Right? We hear your message of repentance. What should we do? Give us some specifics. He goes, all right. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. 
And the one who has food must do the same. Can you do that? I'm asking you now. Yeah. Those are what we call works keeping with repentance. All right? Look at the next one. Tax collectors also came to be by professing teacher. What should we do? All right? Tax collectors, we're sinners. Extortionists, taking more than they need. He gives this. He tells them, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. Toe the line. Some soldiers also questioned. The soldiers used their brute force against people. He says, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. Wow. And then notice what happened as he's preaching this. Notice what it says this in the next verse. Now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. What had this preaching done? It had just gotten them ready for Jesus. (laughs) Can I give you some other things that we see examples of repentance in the Bible? Let me give you some things. It's usually a public display of mourning over sin, such as weeping, tearing garments, hair, and wearing sackcloth. There's just some element of remorse. It's not everything, but there's an element of remorse. There is a making of restitutions for wrongs committed. Zacchaeus is one of the, the most famous. Little Zacchaeus, remember what happened? He took money, he defrauded people, and what did he do? He went and paid it back like fourfold. I'm sorry for robbing you. Here's your money and more. He went and made it right. We humble ourselves before the wrong party. If we go and wrong somebody, we go, I wronged you and I'm sorry. That's a part of repentance. Paul preached the faith he once destroyed. He thought Christianity was crazy. He goes, I repent. I'm going to preach the gospel. Onesimus. Now this is interesting. He was a runaway slave. And Paul told him, you need to go back to your master and make it right. Now, if you read the book of Philemon, which is written about, he tells Philemon, and Philemon, you treat him as a brother in Christ. It's interesting. He's going to come back. Don't you take it out on him. And then in Revelation, I always point this out because some people, I don't know where this theology comes from. Where, they, where we conceive of repentance as a one-time thing. Like, I repented of my sin, trusted Jesus as my Savior, and there's no need of repentance ever again. You're crazy. You will repent for the rest of your life on this earth. And one of the really easy examples of proving this is in the book of Revelation. Jesus is addressing sinful churches. Remember the lukewarm church of Laodicea? Guess what his message is to them? Repent. The church of Ephesus that had lost their first love, what does he tell them? Repent. These are Christians. We're not doubting them. They're they're believers. He goes, hey, get back to your first love. Be on fire for God. Go do those things. And then let me handle this last issue. What is the difference between true and false repentance? Because repentance can be insincere. Y'all, I mean, let's just be honest. Have you ever gotten an apology from somebody that you knew, like, man, they're going to do it again, <laughs> right? They said it. It's the, you know, the brother and sister, like, tell them you're sorry. Sorry. And you're like, they're, you're going to punch them. I know you're going to punch them. God knows his children. He knows when we're really sorry and when we're really not. But sometimes, what, what do we do? We fool ourselves. Like, that was repentance. No, it's not. So let me give you some illustrations. This is from John Stott. There's a great difference between repentance and remorse. 
When Judas Iscariot had betrayed the Lord, he was overwhelmed by remorse and hanged himself. Couldn't face him, right? When Simon Peter denied the Lord, he wept bitter tears of repentance. The remorseful sinner hastens from Christ. The penitent, repentant sinner, flees to him. You see that? Ah, uh, Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, and Jesus never rejects you. Never. Come on. <laughs> right? Remember what John, he keeps, John, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep, John. I mean, no, Peter. Here's another example. This is from Thomas Brooks. These are some beautiful illustrations for repentance. Here's what he says. It is not falling into the water that kills us, right? It's not falling into water that kills us, but lying in the water that drowns us. It is not falling into sin. You, you will still sin as a believer, but here's what I want you to But lying in the sin that damns you. Repentance goes, got to get back up. Got to get back up. This is from George Swinnick. He says, a sheep may fall into the ditch and defile himself, but he hastens out of it. Sheep gets out of that mud. But the swan, the pig, he chooses the dirty place, wallows in it all day long in the mud and mire. A saint may fall into sin, but he hastens to recover himself by repentance. A sinner lives in it day and night. Right? What's our response to our sin? Oh, I've got to get out of this. Can't live in it. And then one of my other favorite ones, Charles Simeon. One of the most essential marks of real repentance is a disposition, a character, to see our sins as God sees them. In fact, the word confession means to say the same thing. We're going to say the same thing about ourselves as God says. He says, not extenuating their guilt by vain and frivolous excuses. You can usually tell, right, when someone's sincere as to who they will assign full culpability and responsibility. Well, there was this thing, right? Like, no, the, the real sincere repentant go, it was me, I did it from beginning to end. And nobody else. There's no extenuating circumstances. And I don't mean we can't have grace to understand people, but the sinner will take responsibility. They will, and not excuse themselves. You should, especially during Advent, prepare yourself by true repentance. Daily, this is, this is a part of the Lord's Prayer. Daily, make an act of confession of your sins. You're a sinner, we will sin. So just confess it, acknowledge it before God. And perform works keeping with repentance. Remember, church, this, our, our repentance cannot save us. That's not what I'm saying. Repentance prepares us to receive the Savior. All right? Watch over our interior life. Bridle your inordinate inclinations, especially today. Make a resolution to avoid some fault for which you have been frequently guilty. And, and here, have you ever noticed this? Notice how the, the, the application that John the Baptist used there on the banks was very specific to particular people, right? This is what you need to do. And it's the same thing. I mean, search your heart and your life going, for me, here's what repentance looks like in my life, right? And take that thing and repent of it. Do repentance and make a good confession during this holy season, Augustine said this, the confession of evil works 
is the beginning of good works. Your first good work is to go, I am a sinner. (laughs) I love that. I need help. Writing to a lady in a trough, C.S. Lewis speaks of chronic temptations and of God's ever-ready willingness to forgive if we repent. You ready for how he describes if we're ready to repent? He says this, We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. He's talking about glory. But the bathrooms are all ready, the towels have been put out, and the clean clothes are in the cupboard. You see, God's ready to receive you. You muddy and tattered? Oh, come on. Don't be afraid to get mud in his house. (laughs) All right? He can take it. George Whitfield, come away, my dear brothers. Fly, fly, fly for your lives to Jesus Christ. Fly to a bleeding God. Fly to a throne of grace and beg of God to break your hearts. Beg of God to convince you of your sins and beg of God to give you faith and to enable you to clothe with Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. This message, another message, repentance, I, I do believe it is a simple thing to say. Much more difficult to accept. Right? Repentance is the hard thing. It's the confession that we're wicked that our way of life is wicked, that our thoughts are wicked, and apart from Jesus intervening, we have no hope. And that's a, that's a tough message for our prideful hearts to accept, but it is the gospel, especially true of Advent season, because we're preparing the way for God, God's King, Jesus himself, to come into our hearts and lives, and one day into this world again. And if you've never repented of sin and committed your life to Christ, I want to pray a prayer that you can repeat silently after me. This prayer is not magical, okay? I I teach it to you in hopes that it sincerely reflect the change of heart that you have, that you will confess you're a sinner and give your life to Christ. And so... Would you pray this prayer with me? Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He hears our thoughts and whispers. Okay, he's God. So just just pray this in your heart. Say, Christ, say, dear Jesus, I know I am a sinner and deserve judgment, but I believe you love me. You came for me. You lived a sinless life, and you died on the cross. For all my sins. And I believe God raised you from the dead to forgive me. Please forgive me. Give me a new life and eternal life. Help me make much of you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to tell you what Jesus taught is the next step in this life of repentance. And it's baptism. John preached a baptism of repentance. And what does baptism do? Baptism does not save, but it signifies to the church and the world that you believe and identify with Jesus' death for your sins when you go down into the water. And when you come up out of the water, it's saying you believe and identify with Jesus' resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, for a spirit-filled life, and for eternal life. And my, my plea to you is if you've never been baptized, be baptized. 
in keeping with repentance. You can fill out that tear-off panel on the side of the bulletin to take baptism. You can text Believe to our text and church number. You go to our website, fill out the baptism form. Give me an opportunity to talk to you about your next right step of repentance. The last thing that I want us to do is I want to read this prayer from John Calvin that was written on, around the theme of repentance. And I want to encourage you to pray along these lines. It's sort of like a prompt for this time of, of meditation. And Stacy, you can begin to play, or Barbara, you can begin to play whenever you, you want to. It says this, Grant, Almighty God, that seeing we are so sleepy, yes, and so fascinated by our sins, that nothing is more difficult than to put off our own nature and to renounce the wickedness to which you have become habituated. Oh, grant that we, being really awakened by your scourgings, may truly return to you, and that having wholly changed our disposition and renounced all wickedness, we may sincerely and from the heart submit ourselves to you, and so look forward to the coming of your Son, that we may cheerfully and joyfully wait for him by ever striving after such a renovation of life as may strip us of our flesh and all corruptions until being at length renewed after your image, we become partakers of that glory which has been attained for us by the blood of the same, your only begotten Son. Will you pray? Father, we echo the sentiment of this song, Lord, that we come broken and sinful, Lord, that we've done our best in the sense of acknowledging our sin and of letting it go and coming empty-handed to you for the free gift of salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. None of us deserve it. And Lord, we recognize that we can't repent our way into salvation, but we can't come to salvation without repentance. A broken and contrite heart ready to obey you. So grant us repentance and faith, especially in this holy season that we can sincerely appreciate the advent of your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to this earth, 
living a sinless life and dying on the cross for all of our sins and being raised from the dead for our forgiveness. Help us to preach nothing but you. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people said, amen. Give me just a second. I got to grab my bulletin so that I can get you uh, the right uh, announcements real quick. A couple of things. Again, I want to encourage you, no matter what the, 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 uh, the guidelines are, we'll do our best to follow them so that you can be baptized. It's so, and we're going to talk about the significance of water baptism more next week. Uh, but if you've never had the opportunity to demonstrate your repentance through uh, this ordinance of baptism, you don't feel like because of the... Um, because of the restrictions that we have, that we can't figure out a way to do it. So please follow up with me, talk to me, and uh, we would be delighted to baptize you, all right? Make sure to RSVP for church, all right, by Thursday of each week, and fill out the RSVP form on the back of the carol panel, drop it in the drop box, or text RSVP to our text in church number. Uh, also, don't miss Sunday school, 10 o'clock in the fellowship hall. You don't have to RSVP for that. Just come as you are. Uh, and you can uh, seated, you can be seated uh, from a distance, all right? Uh, so you don't have to worry about being on top of one another. I do want to remind you of that. And then last but not least, tonight, uh, Pastor Aaron is doing a really good series through the, the gifts of Christmas, all right? And tonight is on the gift of love that Jesus demonstrates by his advent. Don't miss it. Check it out. It should stream live about 558. And then I'll be live Wednesday, Revelation chapter 6, verses 5, 3, and 4. That's, I think, how far I'll get uh, as we look at the second seal there. Hey, have a wonderful Christmas. Enjoy um, and, and enjoy the drive-through uh, uh, Christmas story and encourage others to go be a part of it because we are getting the gospel out to them, all right? Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Um, have a great rest of the afternoon. Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one last song?
Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.